I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton. As the premier independent bookstore in the Hamptons, Bookhampton has a highly curated selection of books for readers of all ages, unique one-of-a-kind gifts, and exciting author events. Browse their fabulous staff suggestions online at bookhampton.com. Daniel H. Pink is the author of six books, including the number one New York Times bestsellers Drive, To Sell as Human, and A Whole New Mind. His most recent book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, spent four months on the New York Times bestseller list. Goodreads, Amazon, and others named it a top nonfiction book of 2018. The former host and co-executive producer of the TV show Crowd Control, which was a show about human behavior, Daniel regularly appears on NPR, PBS, and elsewhere. His books have been translated into 39 languages, which is more languages than I can even name. His articles and essays have been in the New York Times, Slate, The New Republic, and other notable publications. His TED Talk on the science of motivation is one of the 10 most watched TED Talks of all time with more than 20 million views. A Phi Beta Kappa alum of Northwestern, he received a JD from Yale Law School and was a speechwriter for Al Gore. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his family. Also, just a friendly reminder, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, and please subscribe to my podcast. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. It's Zibby Owens from Mom to hey, How are hey, you? Zibby. Good, thanks. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I loved your book when it has like, hey, changed my life already. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what when is about? Sure. When is about the science of timing and ultimately all of the when decisions we make in our life. And when we make these when decisions, we tend to make them based on intuition and guesswork. And that's the wrong way to do it. There is this rich complex body of science out there that gives us clues about how to make better, smarter decisions about when to do things. Everything from when we should exercise, when we should read, when we should do certain kinds of work, when we should do other kinds of work, when we should quit a job, when we should get married. And if we start making these kinds of decisions based on the evidence, rather than based purely on intuition, we're going to make better decisions. That makes sense. I loved your chart here, the five secrets to taking a perfect nap. I'm, I'm putting this like on my uh, bulletin board for, for the kids and everybody who needs one. So for the sleep-deprived parents out there, what are, what are the yeah. tips for taking a perfect nap? Yeah, well, first of all, for sleep deprivation is a, t- a tough issue. So a, a nap isn't going to cure that. And believe me, my kids are older now, but I have a 22-year-old, a 20-year-old today. Oh, happy birthday. And a 16-year-old. So if I go back in time, 15 years, you know, 14 years, I feel your pain. Thank all you. Your parents, all <laughs> your parents out there. But what we know about naps, and again, there's a lot of research on naps, is that Naps are pretty good for us, pretty good for our our mood, pretty good for our uh, mental acuity, pretty good for our overall well-being. However, the ideal nap is actually surprisingly short, shorter than I would have imagined. The ideal nap is between 10 and 20 minutes long. After you nap longer than that, you begin to develop what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, kind of boggy feeling you get when you have slept too long. And so a 10 to 20 minute nap is is extremely effective for any of you ice hockey fans out there. It's like a Zamboni for our brain. You know, like our brain gets scuffed and nicks on our ice and a nap comes through and goes, smooths it all out. So naps are especially good. But the nap that you're referring to, Zibby, is the super duper ultra <laughs> High end, yes, <laughs> which works as, as follows, and I and I've done this, and I actually didn't do it when I was a parent of young kids, and it probably would have saved me some grief. What I do is I will sit in my office 
and I will put on my noise-canceling headphones, indeed the very headphones I'm wearing right now. Then I will set my phone timer to 25 minutes, countdown timer to 25 minutes. And right before I turn it on, though, I will guzzle a big cup of coffee. I, I won't even enjoy it. I'll plunk ice cubes into it just so I can go down easy. It's just gulp a big cup of coffee. Now, then I close my eyes. Timer goes off. I can usually these days fall asleep within, I don't know, you know 10 or let's say 10, 11 minutes. And then, so let's say I fall asleep in 11 minutes. My timer goes off at the 25th minute. That means I've slept, I've had a nap for 14 minutes, which is right in that 10 to 20 minute sweet spot. But here's the bonus. It takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to enter our bloodstream. So at the moment that I am waking up, that Zamboni has done its magic, I'm getting a second hit from that caffeine. So this is a technique, as you know, called a nappuccino. And, <laughs> and I really, now, I hadn't thought about this. I really wish I had done nappuccinos when I had smaller kids. Well, I have to say, I tried the nap technique and I've been very resistant to naps. I just feel like, I don't know, I feel like I should just power through and I tried it this weekend and it changed my life. So I am right. I'm going to adopt this. So thank you from my That's heart. That's great to hear. But, you, but here's the thing, Zibby, you're not the only person who thinks it's better to power through. We have this whole culture of powering through that says that, you know, that's the way to get more work done. That's the way to get better work done. There's also morally virtuous to power through. And what the research is telling us is that's nonsense, total bunk. The research is telling us very clearly we need to take breaks. We should probably be taking more breaks and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. So naps are just one dimension of this larger research on taking breaks. And this is something that I, as in many realms of life, had gotten completely wrong. I had always believed that sort of, I guess, you know, similar to you, that, okay, yeah, the amateurs take breaks, professionals don't take breaks. And it's 180%, 80 degrees opposite. Amateurs are the ones who don't take breaks. Professionals take breaks. I love that. My daughter was doing her homework last night and she's like in the middle. She's like, well, I just need a break. And I thought, well, Dan Pink says it's okay. So you have to go take your break now and get that restorative boost. How long had she been working before she needed a break? I mean, I like that. I I like that kind of self-awareness unless it was like three minutes and she needed a break. Well, no. I mean, she had done a solid hour. So she was. Oh, my God. Yeah, she was. Well, I mean, on and break. Yeah, she needed a break. She I mean, she always needs a break. But (laughs) so I have to say we're having this talk now. It's like two o'clock. And based on your book, this is like the worst time for me to be doing anything that requires my brain because I'm like deep in the trough that you talk about. Can you explain to listeners like when is the best time to be doing your analytic thinking? And I know it depends on if you're a morning person or a night owl, but this was like really really great information to have. Yeah. So, so you're exactly right. It does depend on what your chronotype is. Are you a morning person, an evening person, or in between? What we know is about 15% of us are very strong morning people, larks. About 20% of us are very strong evening people, owls. And about two thirds of us are in the middle. And a way to think about it is this, that we tend to move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, and a recovery peak, a trough, and a recovery. Most of us, about 80% of us, move through the day in that order. So we have our peak early in the day, the trough in the middle of the day, right now, right around when you and I are talking, and then the recovery later in the day. And our cognitive abilities are different during each of these stages. So during the peak, that's when we're most vigilant. And vigilance means that we're able to bat away distractions. So that makes the peak the ideal time for work that requires you know, intense heads down focus and attention, writing a report, analyzing data, doing 
that sort of thing, in a broad category of analytic work, as you say. The recovery period, which again, for most of us is late in the afternoon, early in the evening, we're actually less vigilant during that period, but our mood is, is higher. And so the combination of, we're not totally worn out, but we're not as vigilant. So that combination of being not worn out, but in a decent mood can make it a good time for things requiring some degree of mental looseness. So things like iterating new ideas or brainstorming. And so that's, so we should be doing our insight work, creative work then, our analytic work during the peak. Now, this trough period that you and I are in right now, not a good time, (laughs) not a good time for anything. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't do anything during that work, but you know, you might want to answer your routine emails during that work. And if you do find yourself having to do real work during this trough period, there are some remedies. So for instance, I'm actually, it's, it's, it's a weird day for me because I'm not in my office, I'm in my house because I have to do some interviews that require having a hardline phone, which I do not have in my office. And so it's also incredibly, ridiculously, irritatingly cold outside here in Washington, D.C. Me too. And so, but, but right before this, I actually, because I knew it was like a, a non-optimal time to talk, I actually did like a kind of a sprint, not a full sprint, but sort of close to a sprint up and down the stairs of my house. So I had a little bit of movement. So I had a little bit of a break because we know that in breaks, something beats nothing. We know that movement is better than being stationary. Ideally, I would have gone outside to take a walk, but I'm not going outside in that ridiculous cold. (laughs) And, you know, so even though I'm talking to you at a non-optimal time, even recognizing that allowed me to take some steps to make it a little bit better. And I like how you had a whole hierarchy of things that can make breaks better. Like the best I felt like you were recommending was taking a walk in nature with a friend, right? Isn't the yeah. camaraderie the best and yeah, being in yeah. nature the best? So Yeah, absolutely. So, so there are these design elements. So, that's, so outside is better than inside. Moving is better than stationary. This is really important. Fully detached is better than semi-detached. So you know, a lot of people delude themselves into thinking they're taking a break and they walk around with their, you know, their nose in their Snapchat feed or Instagram feed, that's not a break. And also, very interestingly, as you suggest, social is better than than solo. So breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on our own. And that's true even for introverts, which surprised me. Hmm. And the best time for exercise? It depends, but we can chart that out. It depends on your goals. So if your goal, morning exercise seems to be better for weight loss, although the benefits to weight loss of exercise are not as great as I think people think. Second is um, morning exercise seems to be better for habit formation, probably because you're less likely to get interrupted at 7 a.m. than you are at 5 p.m. And the other thing, which I think is a, a pretty strong argument for morning exercise, is that exercise, not only aerobic exercise, but even weight training, gives us a pretty enduring mood boost. And so if it, it can last like you know, 10, 11 hours. And so if you exercise late in the day, you end up sleeping away some of that mood boost. Whereas in morning exercise, you get it throughout. That said, afternoon and early evening exercise is better for some things, other kinds of things. So afternoon and early evening exercise, like late afternoon, early evening exercise is better for avoiding injury because we're literally more warmed up right at that point. The second thing is that it's better for uh, enjoyment. People enjoy late afternoon and early evening exercise more than morning exercise. And I speak, I, I say that not only looking at the research, but I hate morning exercise. 
I feel awful when I exercise in the morning. By the late afternoon and early evening, I actually kind of enjoy it. And then finally, afternoon, late afternoon, early evening exercise seems to be better for performance, believe it or not. Our lung function is higher, our speed is greater, our hand-eye coordination is a little bit better. So it really depends on it really depends on your goals. But as you see, your listeners can't see this, but but you and I are talking via video. I'm actually dressed in my, you know, some workout clothes because around four o'clock late afternoon, I'm gonna go to the gym because I hate going to the gym in the morning, but I like going to it in the afternoon. See, if I don't go by nine, forget it. It's yeah, done. That, that's fine. You know, here's the thing. People should do what works for them. It really depends on on their goals. And and for me, morning exercise, listen, I want to be one of those badasses who gets up at four o'clock in the morning and then works out for two hours and then reads three newspapers in two different <laughs> languages and is in the office at, <laughs> at 7.15. But that's not me. You know, I'm the guy, you know, I'll, I'll wake up at seven. I'll get to the office at 8.30. And you know what? I'll go for a run at 4.30 or five. And that's you know, it's like the Popeye principle. It's like I am who I am. And you said have your therapy sessions in the morning. This was another good one. Uh, yeah, there's, there's there's some really interesting evidence on on therapy sessions that we actually that actually therapy we tend to absorb. In general, we absorb messages better. We learn a little bit better. Again, not all of us. People who are owls are a little bit different. But the vast majority of us absorb and learn a little bit more in the morning than in other times of day. So there is evidence that therapy sessions are more effective in the morning rather than than later in the day. So what do you do if you're a lark married to an owl? When are you ever supposed to talk? Well, no, that's a, that's actually a really tough one. And it's it's interesting how often that will come up when I talk to people, um, when, I, when, I, when I talk to people about this. It can be difficult. And I think that one of the things that you have to do is you have to recognize that the other person's, like a chronotype is a very heavily biological thing. You know, it's like height, all right? And it's not a character flaw if somebody is an owl. That is, they wake up late and go to sleep late. It's not a character flaw, right? It's not a character flaw if somebody, you know, wakes up at six in the morning and then falls asleep at nine in the evening. It's just like, that's who they are. It's sort of like complaining about, you know, let's say in straight couples, you know, oh, I'm really miffed. My wife is short. You know, it's like, okay, what are you going to do about that? <laughs> She's short. Or, you know, my, my husband's, my husband's tall. I hate that. Like, okay, what are you going to do? And so I think that recognizing it as a biological feature is, is really important. And then just making, you know, whatever, whatever accommodations you have. You see some evidence that when you have groups that have a mix of chronotypes, that that can create cognitive diversity that ends up making better decisions. So there could be a virtue in that as well. What's interesting is that there are differences in men and women and their chronotypes. Men are more likely to be owls more than, than women. Um, and uh, even over the course of a lifetime, well, little kids are very strong larks, as most of us know, most of your parents know. They get up early in the morning and start running around like insane nut jobs early, <laughs> you know. But then around the mid-teens, there is a massive move toward lateness. And again, it's biological. They can be very significant shifts, two hours, three hours, four hours. And that period of owliness exists until about the mid-20s. Then after that, in general, leaving aside the hardcore owls, the 20% of us who are hardcore owls, there is a general return to larkiness, except that women and men, women return to larkiness a lot faster than men. And and so what you have actually, and I don't have the chart here, but you know, I could be useless to draw it in the podcast, but the, 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 what the chart shows is that among straight couples, male-female couples of the same age, they almost always have incompatible sleeping times. The man in general is a little bit 
owlier than, um, than, than the woman. Yeah. I feel like my husband and I never agree on what time to book a flight because I want to fly at like 9 a.m. and he wants to fly at like 9 p.m. So, oh, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> here's the thing. I, I'm going to side with you on that, leaving aside your husband's chronotype here for a moment, because early morning flights are less likely to get delayed. Ooh, thank you for it. See, that's, the, that's, the, that's the argument. The first flight of a day is far less likely to have a problem or get delayed than a flight later in the day. Excellent. Thank you for helping me win that argument from now on. That's a very, very helpful. Uh, <laughs> another uh, thing that I thought was great that as a companion to your book, you have all these little videos on your website that are short uh -oh. and they're like animated and you have the words underneath so people can read them. You have audio so people can hear them. I feel like someone was like, this is the best educational framework for making a, a a story because people like learn in such different ways. Was that your goal there? Because I feel like that was. Uh, well, thank you so much for saying that because it, because those things are what, what you're referring to, I, I call pink cast, which are these. Yes, super I'm sorry. Short, pink cast. No, that's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Super short videos. I started out as an experiment. I try a lot of experiments of trying different ways of conveying ideas. And, you know, you know like many experiments, most of them don't go anywhere. Uh, this is one that's actually worked pretty well. And the, the idea was that a lot of people online, especially on their phones, didn't necessarily want to watch a super long video, but people were still curious and wanted to learn. And if you could distill something to 60 seconds, 90 second video, uh, and actually right now, and we changed a little bit, we have the subtitles underneath them so people don't right. even have to turn on the sound. If you can leave people with one idea, one tip in 60 to 90 seconds and do it in a way that is mildly entertaining, it'll prove to be pretty popular. So that, that has worked pretty well. And, and what I'm working on right now, as a matter of fact, is actually taking those pink cows to the next level, making them even a little bit more entertaining, a little bit better produced, but still leaving people with that one tip, that one takeaway that they can use in their life. I liked how you always sort of ended it with some sort of a, a joke or a pun or like, it was perfect. They were all like wrapped up with a little bow. I loved it. Anyway, <laughs> looking forward to more of those. <laughs> so you have had 20 million views of your TED Talk. What does that feel like? How does it feel to know that 20 million people out there are watching you talk and really learning from your ideas? Well, I mean, it's 20 million views. We don't know if it's 20 million people. Like, it could be that yeah, I'm sitting it's, here. It's and, your mom 10 million times. Uh, yeah, or I watched it myself 19 million times. So, but you know what? I don't think about it that much. I mean, I'm just glad to, I'm just glad to be able to, you know, it's what we were talking about before with the pink cast. It's like, you know, what I do for a living um, as a writer is try to do deep, real research that gives people some insights into their world. Because I think that people have, you know, they're, they're overwhelmed with day-to-day -day experience and they're, they're missing context. They don't understand how the pieces fit together. So I think if I can provide people that and translate that research in a way that is accessible and then give them something to do about it, then, you know, I'm doing something reasonably good for, for the world. And today, especially, you know, you and I are talking via Skype. You've got this podcast for this audience of parents, mostly moms. Um, you know, there are all kinds of ways to get ideas out there. So I think you really have to endlessly experiment with what are the best ways to tell stories? What are the best ways to convey ideas? What are the best ways to make arguments? Try stuff. If it works, keep doing it. If it doesn't work, stop doing it. And to me, it's like, you know, I, I think that what, what people might not know is how much stuff doesn't work. Mm. And then you just stop doing it. And in terms of writing your books, how much time and, and research goes into each of the books? You've, this is your sixth, seventh, sixth Six, book? yeah. Six books. You know, ideally about two years. Most of my books are fairly research intensive. And so I spend, you know, maybe a year on the research 
And then I spent a year in the writing, but the writing often will entail in the course of writing something, you'll realize, oh my God, there's a giant hole here. I need to talk about this topic and I don't have any research on it. So you go back and do that. Or you'll say, oh, I did all this research on this thing and it's actually really boring and useless. I can't use this. So I have another gap here. And so generally, so for, for me, but I'm a slow worker. It's generally about a two-year process. And it sounds like from your acknowledgement, do you have your kids helping you out now? Well, my kids are older now. So, so in this last book, my elder daughter, but both my daughters, actually, the one who's now 22 and the one who's now 20. So they were just a couple of years younger. They actually read pieces of it. And, you know, believe me, uh, any daughter especially is willing to tell her dad when he's full of it and doesn't know what he's talking about. So they were very good at that. They're very <laughs> astute readers. And my son, actually, because I needed a basketball example, he was willing to help me out find that. I actually found some great basketball research. And then it's a family business here, man. And then my <laughs> wife, you know, it's a hugely important part of all of these books from the conception all the way through um, the final editing and things like that. And for reasons that I can't understand, she is willing to sit in a small room with me while I read pages out loud to her and also read the pages out loud to me. I find I, I like to edit by hearing the words sometimes. And so this book and other ones, uh, Jessica, my wife, has literally read every single word out loud to me. And here's the thing. I am the most annoying person in the world to be read to <laughs> because I have a certain way I want things read and I will interrupt and I will criticize. And yet she stuck with it. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> and what do you have? What's your next book? What are you working on now? I don't know. You got any ideas? I'm trying to figure that out right now. There are a lot of, you know, for me, the topic you pick for writing a book has a very, very high bar because it's just so much work. It's, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and still it's really hard to write a book and it's really hard to write a good book. And it takes a lot of effort. And even if you've done it before, it gets a tiny bit easier, but actually not that much easier. And so for me, I want to pick a topic that I really, really am into. I think sometimes journalists will write an article about something and it's kind of interesting and then they'll decide to write a book about it without fully vetting it. And, you know, it's sort of like getting married to somebody after two dates. It's like, okay, I had a pretty good time in those two dates, but that doesn't mean you get married. Like for me, the bar is very, 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 very high. So I've written, I've actually uh, explored several ideas and even written full proposals for books that I eventually said, I don't want to live with this for several years or the rest of my life, or this isn't quite good enough. So I'm trying to figure that out right now. All right, I'll, I'll send you some ideas later. Sure, I'll, uh, I'll take yeah. it. I'm a little desperate. <laughs> Do you have any other advice aside, that was pretty helpful right there, but any other advice to aspiring writers? Aspiring, oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so, there, so just recognize that writing is, is really, 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 really hard. And what you see on the page is often the product of a lot of sweat and torture. Don't get the idea that any writer just simply shows up, blah, 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 blah sits down and <laughs> you know, they start taking dictation from God. It doesn't work that way. To me, the best advice I can give to writers, aspiring writers is, is number one, you got to read a lot. I'm surprised by people who say, I want to be a writer and they actually don't read very much. You're not going to be a writer that way. Second thing, or maybe the first thing is in terms of day-to-day -day practices is that it's really important to treat, at least it is for me, to treat writing like a job, all right? You don't just start writing whenever you feel inspired. If I waited until I was inspired to write, I would have 
zero books to my name. All right. What you should do is instead, I I treat it like in some ways a blue collar job. I've said this many times. I liken writing to building a brick wall, right? What do you do to build a brick wall? Like a giant brick wall, right? You show up on day one with your supplies and put up a few bricks. And then what do you do? You show up the next day, put up a few more bricks. And it doesn't, the the world doesn't care whether you're in the mood to put up bricks that day or not. You just freaking show up. And if you just show up and show up and show up and show up and treat it like a job, treat it like a blue collar job where you have to do the work, you'll be surprised at how often inspiration will come because you've shown up. So it's, it's, it's really just show up every day and read a lot. I think those two things, and here's the thing that surprises me, is that a lot of people who want to be writers aren't even willing to do that. And if you're not willing to do that, Game over. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I really appreciate it. Of course. I hope they have time to read this book, but I hope they have time to listen to the podcast if if they can't read the book. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton, bookhampton.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) 